Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Trish, you're a bit of a flibbity-gibbet this morning. What's going on? You're all discombobulated. Well, uh, do you know what? I'm freezing. I'm freezing cold. I'm freezing. Well, do you, uh, do you know what? It's the middle of winter and I've got every door and window open in my house. Why? Well, there's a husband there. He opens every door and window every 10 minutes. It's not, it's so not the normal of what you would expect in a hot flush. There's a really hideous smell. And we oh. can't work out what it is. Someone buried it, under the boards. Well, I think it could be. It could be. We, we started having dreams about people being buried under the house. I think it might be a little mouse that got lost and is now starting to, Oh, you know, dear. Yeah. It's not one of your dreadful, healthy... Is it beetroot? <laughs> No, it could be one of my kale stews. Maybe it's yeah, a bit it's that. It's a bit cabbagey. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. I'm Trish Halpin, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Lorraine and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. In today's episode, we're going to be winning at midlife with lessons from a life coach on the ground rules we should be setting for a happy now, as well as laying the foundations for a brilliant future. And Trish and I will also be chatting about confidence in midlife and the art of not giving a stuff, which as you know, Trish, I've not really done for most You've of You've never life. done it. I've so given quite a few stuffs, but we'll be talking have, about yes. it in general. Yes. Right, our main interview today is a little bit different, but Lorraine and I thought this was a really important topic to discuss because it's something we are all going to have to deal with at some times in our lives and it will likely challenge us in ways we never knew possible. Joining us to talk about bereavement during National Grief Awareness Week is former actress Linda Magistris, founder of the Good Grief Trust. Yes, Linda's going to be telling us about her love story and losing her partner, Graham, in midlife and how that changed the course of her future. You need to get the tissues ready. Trish and I have already got ours because we know Linda's going to be sharing some of the most important advice any of us are ever likely to hear. Lorraine, it's jibber-jabber time and I want to know your thoughts on confidence in midlife. What's boosted yours? What knocks it? And do you agree that if ever there was a time to not give a stuff, now is the time to do it? It is true, isn't it? That's the thing. And in fact, uh, Trini Woodall said it in our very first podcast of series three she said she really doesn't give a shit she's 56 mm. and she doesn't and this is the time to have that attitude so there is a bit of an unraveling when you mm-hmm. come to midlife but that's physical so you can sort that out mm-hmm. most of it out and then there's a massive liberation isn't there confidence coming to you and it, I think sometimes it's mistaken as arrogance but it isn't it's it's confidence yeah. isn't it and you start to prune your friends you start to accept who you are you start to realize that you're not just a parent that you've got other jobs and other things that you can do you're not just in your career or you can have a new start I think it makes it better for family mm-hmm. relationships I've learned to say no a bit more mm. to things. I've learned not to be so busy in midlife which was what used to give me confidence but I think it's probably not ideal I think that it's not about bad behavior but it's about really asserting yourself isn't it mm-hmm. have but you so, asserted yourself so, well you know I've never been assertive Lorraine so for me confidence I think it's something I've grown into and I think you do that from childhood and obviously I was awful as a child and a teenager I was so shy cripplingly shy I just found most day-to-day situations excruciating from making friends to talking to adults to how I looked, all of that sort of stuff. And I kind of wanted to be invisible. And I had that very much, uh, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And I think that can really haunt you as a woman through life. But I found in my 20s and 30s that confidence came to me through, I think, the fact that I was in a happy relationship. I had a good career. I mean, I still had mortification about, you know, when you have a hangover and you think, oh God, what did I say? Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) We all have that. That kind of can be a little bit of a dent. Then I started to feel really comfortable in my own skin by the time you hit your 40s. And then, of course 
perimenopause strikes and you start doubting yourself again and you start questioning things and you're not happy and you don't know what's going on. And, and I think that's where, you know, the little seeds of self-doubt can be sown. And then if you don't kind of check them, they can kind of grow into these bigger things. But then, as you say, by the time you get to your 50s, hopefully you've come out the other side yeah. and you are in the official, I don't give a stuff phase I, of life. I, yes. I mean, we talked about this, Trish, before I hit 50, I was a, a bit doom, a bit Eeyore. Yeah. It's not like me. I'm normally quite positive. But when I turned 50, it did change. I really was much more confident. I think there's a kind of pep talk, isn't there, that you can give yourself probably midway through the 40s. Mm-hmm. I used to say, it doesn't matter what people think about you. Not that it ever bothered me, but it seemed to bother everybody around me. They seem to be crippled by this fear of what mm. people think about them. And I think a lot of women are liberated when they realize it just doesn't matter what people think about you and not everyone can like you. That's a massive liberation. I was writing the other day, actually, a piece about the difference between being popular and being liked. And often mm-hmm. very popular people are not at all liked. So once you kind of realize that and you stop comparing yourself, that makes you more confident I think and there's a really brilliant blog I read which is called now that I am 50 and I thought well that's a great sentence maybe you could ask yourself that and say now that I'm 50 I will and my mantra is now that I'm 50 I will say no when I want to Mm -hmm. say no you just keep adding to that sentence I think that's quite a nice thing to do I read a brilliant phrase the other day about being 50 and not giving a stuff and I think it kind of applies to you and I it's as long as everything is exactly how I want it I am extremely flexible. (laughs) I think that sort of sums it up, isn't it? As long as it's okay, and that's how I want it to be when I'm 50. And obviously, Trish, I think sometimes some of the most confident women, people, are not actually as confident as they seem. Isn't that true? Well, it is, exactly. Celebrity is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you look at these women like J-Lo your favourite, <laughs> Nicole Kidman, all of these amazing women who you think, wow, they've got it all sussed. And I'm just reading loads of quotes from all of these women just talking about Is this your daily pep talk, how to be more confident by Trish? <laughs> yes, Is that what you do? Exactly. Just interesting because these are real women. They have these kind of moments of doubt and moments of crisis and moments of thinking people are criticising me. But can I just tell you who just aces confidence? Is Serena Williams. I just think she is yeah, a total, she's an amazing role model. Total role model in that. So, I can I actually read her. out a quote because I really like this one? She says, "Should we print it out and stick it on our fridge?" Yes, let's do it. Right, right then. Yes. So she says, I'm black, I'm strong, I'm powerful, and I'm confident. My arms might not look like the girl over there, or my legs might not look like someone else, or my butt, or my body, or my anything. I look people in the eye and say, if you don't like it, I don't want you to like it. I'm not asking you to like it. I love it, and I love me. Brilliant. Serena. Also, it's a bit like looking at your teenage girls and they sometimes are so confident. Mm. I think maybe teenage and midlife is where you should be finding a similar Mm. kind of confident level. It's about change and then finding it. One of my teenagers often says, if I display a negative quote or I I moan about something, she says, who asked you? Just get on with it. And she's so (laughs) confident. She doesn't care what anyone thinks about her. It's absolutely brilliant. I wonder where she gets that from. Well, I don't know. No. We talked talked to another mum whose teenager is persistently accused of being really quiet in class at school. And she chatted to her daughter and her daughter said, I'm not quiet because I'm not confident. I'm not quiet because I'm an introvert. I just don't have anything to say. I listen to what other people say. I decide Mm -hmm. what I think. And then I deal with that myself. I contribute Mm -hmm. if I want to contribute. And I think that's a very powerful Mm -hmm. confidence to have, isn't it? Just being an introvert when you want to be. It just shows the expectations of society are that we should all be out there doing it, but we don't necessarily want to. We might be just jolly happy being who we are. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now it's time to meet today's guest. Linda Magistris is a former actress who set up the Good Grief Trust when she didn't know how or where to turn for help following the death of her partner, Graham. On a mission to change the way the nation deals with bereavement, she is spearheading the National Grief Awareness Week. Grief can be complicated, she says, but access to support never should be. Welcome, Linda, to Postcards from Midlife. So I think it would be good to start kind of in the beginning because for a Generation X listener, which we all are, you are actually quite famous, aren't you? You were in the original 1970s lineup for Grange Hill and you played Susie, didn't you? It's so relevant to your story, isn't it? So you started there and you met Graham, your partner, who worked on the show and that was the beginning of a love story. Do you want to talk us through Grange Hill and Graham and how it all started? Oh, thank you. Yes, it's so lovely to be here and and to tell my story, so I was a child actor. I went to drama school. I went to Italia Conti when I was little. Loved treading the boards and singing and dancing and everything. Anyway, I ended up at Grange Hill and playing one of the leads, which was brilliant. So it was the original series of Grange Hill, 1978, I think we launched. And it was an amazing time in my life because I sort of grew up on the programme you know, about, tell us about your character. What she oh, was much fun. I mean, I was a bit stereotypical, really, and I was cast for who I was. I was a bit of a head uh, girl. Bit of a squat. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I played Susie McMahon, who was basically into doing her homework, and she did a bit of judo. Great um, curly hair, though. Loved the hair. Yeah, thank you. I did have a big mop of curly sort of 70s hair at the time. And I had um, this really lovely character, George, who is still my friend 40 odd years after. But he played my boyfriend, Alan. So it was all about Susie and Alan having this lovely little romance. <laughs> and first time she took a bra off. And <laughs> oh, look at her face. She can remember it all. <laughs> oh, really? Well, it was just the first time I'd ever kissed anybody. It was just crazy because I remember our amazing director, Colin Kant, saying, right, okay, you've got to kiss George. And I was like, oh, no. He's just so lovely, but I was just so nervous and I was really naive <laughs> and it was just crazy. And then I went on to do the sequel, Tucker's Luck. But I met Graham there, yeah. So Graham was this sort of hot shot young director. We were in our 15, 16-year-olds and he was sort of, he was 11 years older actually and he was just this really dynamic, charismatic, sort of really ambitious young guy who we all thought, oh my God, it's Graham Feekston. And anyway, so that was it really. We worked together and he went off and won a BAFTA and did incredible work in the business for like 30 years. And I'd had two children and had a really lovely marriage, but sadly we didn't stay together and crazily about 30 years after I'd finished Grain Chill I was out in Wimbledon Village and suddenly I heard this voice say Linda and I thought no it can't be and Graham had this really distinctive very sort of incredible voice he'd come out of his long-term relationship I come out of my marriage and we were together for eight years we literally the following day had lunch and that was it it was it was how, how old were you then so I was sort of early 40s. I think I was 42, something like that. Right. And as I say, he was 11 years older than me. Uh, I don't know. We just had this instant connection. It was just so lovely. And we mm-hmm. just had a really lovely time for eight years, really. It and sounds like it love. was meant mm-hmm. to be. You bumped into each mm-hmm. other and then uh, this person came back into your life. But as you say, it was only for eight years. Do you want to tell us what happened? Yeah, so it was sort of in the final year before he died, actually. And he was an incredible writer. He'd, he'd been producing and directing for Donkey's Years, but wanted to do writing. And he'd written a couple of amazing films and scripts that were in Hollywood. And, but he's left-handed and his left hand started becoming numb all up his arm for the past year. He was sort of complaining, had loads of operations, lots of investigations, and they couldn't find anything. And I just remember it so distinctly. He was in St. George's in, in Tooting, and he said, look, they're going to discharge me, but they're just going to do a quick scan on my shoulder, an MRI. And he's had all these incredible operations. 
Anyway, he phoned me back and said, don't bother picking me up because they found something. They found a tumour. And my heart sank. And even now, I just remember his voice. And he's just, oh, it was awful. So I just drove down there and went up to the ward. And he was standing there with a consultant. And I could see by the consultant's face that it wasn't good. And I knew because my dad had died. Well, he died 20 years ago this year. But I knew that you know, it wasn't good. So I immediately just said, can we get him to the Marsden? I just thought, right, you know, this is really serious. And I could see his face and I started crying and and it was just horrible. It was horrible. But at that point they gave him 18 months to two years to live and they mm-hmm. tried to treat him, but it wasn't good. It was an aggressive cancer. And how did you spend that time? How did you spend that last mm-hmm. year knowing that you, you only had this short period of time left together? Yeah, well, we only literally had five and a half months. So they diagnosed him in the March and he died in the September. And, and that was just for the hospital appointments, which was horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's constantly just looking at your watch, thinking, where do you have to go? You know, who do you have to talk to? And every time it was just bad news. It was just horrible. And he was an incredibly dignified, very funny, charismatic, intelligent chap who fought it every step of the way and he didn't want to think it was terminal he didn't want to think that he wouldn't have a future and he wouldn't write his books and so he was in denial so September came and we spent 10 days in the Marsden and they were incredible suddenly they just said there's no point he had only had one round of chemo and they said there's no point he was just too weak mm-hmm. uh, he died at home he died um overnight and did you have any concept over that five month period of how you were going to deal with his death had you been advised on any kind of support that you might get anyone around you or had the people around you been advised no not at all obviously in hindsight that was something that needed to have been flagged up really I remember having a conversation at the Marsden once with one of the nurses who said are you okay and I just burst into tears and said no and walked out but that was it really we Mm. weren't prepared in any way shape or form it was all to do with the practicalities the medication what he needed to do but there was no mention of support whatsoever no feels like Um, it very much lacks compassion because you said on one of your bbc interviews that you were given a leaflet about cruise but you didn't qualify for the support because you didn't live in the area and during that terrible period of grief when you're exhausted and, and very stressed you then had to start trying to find some support somewhere it just seems an extraordinary thing yeah there was a catalogue of things that actually now I think in hindsight okay that was you know for me meant to be because even the hospice who was looking after him at home phoned me the day after he died and checked on an appointment for later in the month they didn't even know the hospice didn't even know the communication was just so lacking um yeah so I went to the GP and, and bless him you know tried to do his best and he gave me a leaflet as a safer cruise and I went there I had to pretend I lived with a girlfriend in Kensington because I was in Wandsworth at the time and and there was nothing there was nothing for month something like 18 months or something ridiculous and I thought I can't wait a few hours let alone that so yeah I did go to counseling for sessions and just sobbed through the whole thing and I just thought this is no, not going anywhere. What you were offered is- antidepressants as well, weren't you? Yes, yeah, so I went back to the GP and he basically said, look, I'm sorry, there's nothing else. We can give you sleeping tablets. And I just thought, look, it's not right for me. I, I'm not someone mm. who even takes medication. So it was at that point, to be honest, that I walked out and I thought, hang on. Um, and I've, I've said it time and time again. I went back to the hospitals where he was treated and I said, what do you do for bereavement support? And, and one of them just said, look, if you'd like to start a support group, that'd be great. This is, this is madness. Hundreds and hundreds of yeah. people die in this yes. hospital. At that point, I realized, because I joined a charity that I just happened to Google, I happened to accidentally find, which was a big national charity called Widowed and Young. Fantastic. People under 50. Supported exactly the way that I needed to. At that point, I realized having chatted to everybody. They lived from John O'Groats to Land's End, everywhere. There was a lack of early signposting. There was a lack of knowledge about what services were available locally, nationally, regionally. And that is exactly what I realised. And I thought, okay, this is what we need to do, bring it together. How long did that take you? Okay, so he died in September 2014. And we launched the charity on BBC Breakfast on September the 2nd, the day he died, two years later. So it took me, me, by the time I chatted and and sort of met all these bereavement teams across the country and done some research and just went out and piggybacked on every single initiative there was. And I chatted to all the charities. And I thought, okay, yeah, this needs to be done. And I just got some friends and we just phoned every bereavement service across the country and we contacted everybody and we got them all together. So it's probably about 18 months, I should imagine. And tell us how it works. Anyone, anywhere, whoever they've lost, 
they literally put their postcode into the website, thegoodgrieftrust.org, and up will pop a list of services tailored for your particular loss, that whether that's a child, a partner, a sibling, a friend, if that's suicide, baby loss, epilepsy, cancer, whatever it is, wherever you are, you can find tailored support because traditionally all we've done is signpost people to a couple of major charities, uh, maybe the Samaritans, and we haven't given people the choice because when you are grieving, you need to find other people who have been through a very similar circumstance, a similar bereavement. And that is generally what you need from the day one. Yes, you might need counselling. Yes, you might need specialist help later on, more tailored help. But right from the beginning, you need to know that other people have been through something similar. And that mm-hmm. is so, so well known. Julia Samuels, who is a guru amongst um, grief and loss, and she's the founding patron of Child Bereavement UK. She says it isn't the circumstances of the death that will predict a positive or negative outcome. It is the support they get at the time and after the death. This is the key component to anybody finding a way to rebuild their life. And that's so key. How far did you feel you'd gone towards rebuilding your life without Graham? Yeah, I'm, I'm way ahead of where I was. And that, I know, is due to the fact that I am constantly meeting people who are so, so inspirational, who are so full of energy and passion and compassion. Every day I speak to someone who's bereaved. Last night I had an hour and a half call with someone who lost her husband and she was not signposted. She stood in that hospital. Nobody told her where to go when she left that hospital. She's been on her knees since COVID, grieving in isolation, and she had no idea what was out there for her. And that is what drives me forward. You know, there's nothing I could have done to help Graham. He just got this really nasty, aggressive cancer. But I can help literally hundreds of thousands of people. And the Good Grief Trust can do that because it's not difficult. It's not rocket science. We just need to bring people together. We need to Mm -hmm. share share knowledge and, and experience. Do you need psychological training? or is therapy part of recovery or in terms of grieving for somebody because I know meeting people is is one aspect but Mm. counseling work did it work for you is that something that people who've lost someone should go through well you know it it's grief is unique grief is as unique as we all are it depends on that relationship that you've had with that person it could be this year someone's died it could be 40 years ago it could have happened six months ago it completely depends on you as a person what it is you need but generally speaking, people don't need counselling. No, they don't. Because generally, it's finding a way forward. It's finding the knowledge that your grief is understood and has been recognised. Look at all these people this year who have been in desperate, desperate conditions. Um, grieving in isolation. They haven't been able to reach out to friends and family. They haven't had their grief acknowledged. And that is so damaging. All you need from day one is for somebody to reach out, to hold your hand virtually or or physically, you know, if we can ever get to that point again, and to say, look, we know this is the most painful thing you will ever go through, but there is help out there. Mm -hmm. And that is really what you need from day one. I lost my mother coming up for 17 years ago, and I know you lost your father as well, Linda, but the recollection of the the feelings and the intensity of the everything that you're feeling and the shock. And I still even kind of return to it sometimes now, like you, you mentioned, it could be 40 years on and it does it it's it stays with you and I think I read somewhere that you said it never goes but you learn to to live with it somehow you learn you never that the, the loss of that person never goes does it no it, it doesn't we talk about grief being love so the love's never going to go they are in your heart they are in your family you know if you've lost your husband or your wife and your children are there you're constantly talking about that person because they are with you all the time whether they're physically there or not your mom your dad your cousin your uncles your friends your colleagues they were so part of your life why are they suddenly okay they're physically not there but of course they continue to be in your life and that's a really healthy mm-hmm. thing and that's exactly what we're trying to do and we're trying to bust that taboo let people have that sort of permission to grieve. I mean, last year's campaign, the National Grief Awareness Week, shared messages, really key messages. Just because I'm smiling does not mean that I'm not grieving. Mm-hmm. Say their name, we're thinking about them anyway. You know, there is no one face of grief. There is no timeline for grief. All these assumptions, all these things that we think, actually, they're not true because there are no rules. There are no judgments within grief. We really do need to wake up to the fact that we are all completely individual. We will all grieve. We will all be affected by a bereavement. It's utterly normal. 
I thought I was going completely crazy. I used to scream to the sky, where on earth are you? Because mm-hmm. I thought one minute he's here, next minute he's in a pot on mm-hmm. his brother-in-law's shelf. And I just thought that is ridiculous. And we do think that. We think we are going crazy. But people who are grieving are going through completely normal emotions. And that is what we need to get out there. We don't need to medicalize it. We don't need to do that. Yes, of course, sadly, some people have very complicated grief. And as you said, you know, maybe you've had a bereavement, but you've now had a second bereavement and it's come to the same place. It comes straight back to the same place. If you haven't grieved properly, if you haven't let those emotions be free, we need to talk about grief. It's like mental health. You need to just talk about it. Is there something you could advise people who are going through it now, just little things that they could do that would perhaps make life a bit more bearable in that kind of, the next, for the next 10 minutes? Yeah, I think to look after yourself, <laughs> if you can. I mean, we're always full of guilt and regret and that burden. Try, if you can possibly do that, to just think there is nothing you probably could have done. So many people are filled with that and riddled with that sort of guilt and burden of, oh my goodness, you know, I didn't say this, I didn't say that. Try and let that go if you can. But I think in the immediate aftermath, if you can find something to read, a video to watch, that's what we've got on the Good Grief Trust. Many people, even if they can't reach out immediately, by reading other people's stories, by connecting with other people who've been through something, through video, through articles, you're not alone. You know, you often feel so alone and isolated, particularly if it's a husband or a wife. You're going back to your home. You're going back to that empty, empty house. You've left them at the hospital. You are so isolated. But just to reach out and know, it can really, really help in those early days. And what about supporting children if a partner dies or a grandparent dies, a a parent of children? You know, you're going to be grieving yourself and you've also got to be looking after these children and supporting them and helping them to understand grieving. Because if we we as adults are finding it difficult and struggle to manage it, how on earth do we get our kids to do that? I think the experts, we are people who've been bereaved, but we always reach out and signpost people to those experts. And generally, it's thought of to keep um, some sort of normality, keep that routine going. Often, school is their safe place because home has been chaotic. It could have happened at home. They might have unfortunately and very sadly witness something happening often by going to school with their school friends their peers that is a really safe environment for them so keep that routine going but again there are some wonderful specialists who can help children there's wonderful sort of arts and activities and things that you can do that children can find really gentle and helpful to them there's some incredible resources some wonderful books out there so again please do look at our website we will signpost out the grief trust if someone has died or lost someone or lost a child god forbid or a friend has committed suicide or something how do you as someone in the environment talk to someone who's lost somebody so again our facebook page is is incredibly popular because people can connect they can share they can listen and this is actually at the top of our facebook page and it says if you know someone who has lost a very important person in their life and you're afraid to mention them because you think you may make them sad by reminding them that they died you're not reminding them they didn't forget that they died What you're reminding them of is that you remember that they lived. And that is a great, great gift. And that is so, so key. This is another reason why we've launched the campaign. Public awareness of how to speak to someone who's grieving is so, so important. We're so awkward. We don't know what to do. It's very hard, isn't it? It's so difficult because what you do is you just think, I've lost so many friends, sadly, because you just, it's so sad. It's difficult. It's depressing. Some people feel it quite morbid. Um, to talk about the person, please know that all they want to do is actually generally, some people, yes, of course, it's, it's too painful to talk about that person. But generally speaking, if you've got a friend or family member or a colleague, please just reach out to them, pick up that phone and not just at the funeral, not just mm-hmm. immediately, but afterwards, two months after, three months after. And you'll find some people are really angry and they don't want to talk. But some people, most people, will really appreciate, look, can I take the children out? Can I take the dog out? Can I leave you a lasagna? Can I? But just do it. Please don't ask what they need. Just offer something. I know, again, it's really difficult. And if you don't know what to say, please just say that. Say, I don't know what to say, but I know 
that I'm here for you. Please know that I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. What were the kindest things people did for you? Can you remember specifics? Yeah, just asking me out. Come on, come on, come and have a coffee. Come on, you know, and you you don't feel like it. You don't want to get dressed. You know, you don't even want to have a cup of tea or a shower or whatever it is. You just think, I just can't, I can't do it. But by really close friends, just knowing you and knowing what is good for you is amazing. And in doing this, setting up the Good Grief Trust, which is just brilliant that you, you, you've had the power and energy to do that. Has it made you think about your own mortality? Utterly, it has made me think about my own mortality, yeah. To think about my own funeral. You know, what is it I want? You know, I used to be a wedding planner <laughs> for years. And I'm now thinking, okay, what is it I need? Because I don't want someone else to sort it all out. And you know that it's so important and so important to your family to not leave them with that burden. And yeah, we do have to wake up to it. We just mm. got to do it. It's life and Does death. Does it make you grasp every day though? Do, uh, is it true when they say, you know, you really realise what you've got and you're properly grateful for the yeah. fabulousness of life? Completely. My patience is so much more for people who need help, but so much less for people who talk about the nonsense of life. I'm like, I just don't have time for it. You know, unless it's happened to you, it's very, very difficult. It's like putting an old head on young shoulders. You can't really put a bereaved head on someone who hasn't really Mm -hmm. had that impact personally. But I think this is what we really need to do. We do need to raise awareness and bust those taboos. Nobody can tell you what giving birth is like until you have given birth. And nobody can tell you what the grief and the feeling of grief is like until you've really experienced it. You can't prepare for it, can you? Yeah, exactly. You can't prepare for it. But what you can do is raise awareness Mm. of what you might be feeling and what might happen. So many people go through deep, dark thoughts. They turn to alcohol or drug abuse. Nobody really tells you that. From day one, if if you're told that actually what you are feeling is normal, you are not going mad. You are not on your own feeling these things maybe then we deal with it in a healthier way and that life goes on because if you if you think about it in advance if I think about god forbid something happened to my children you just think well I couldn't go on that would be it that would be but of course you do don't you you do go on and life does go on yeah and the strength that you feel is amazing and you talk to so many people and see I have you know seen so many people who have used the pain and the heartbreak and the real terror of losing someone so close. But they've turned it around and they've gone out there. And it's like some people turn it into a superpower. You know, I spoke to many friends who said, nothing else can hurt me. Nothing else can hurt me anymore. And they sort of get this inner strength. And it does give you this resilience to go through life with a deeper meaning. And you go, do you know what? I'm going to get out there and just live my life and do as much as I possibly can to help other people because you know it's the most awful thing it's grief awareness week tell us what you've been doing and what you've achieved or hope to achieve last year the good grief trust spearheaded the national grief awareness week and we brought together oh gosh over 150 charities at parliament we had a big launch with esther ranson who's a brilliant supporter of ours and we it was pretty much an online campaign and it went out we had pop-up cafes and it was to raise awareness of the impact of grief and loss on a national platform because we'd never really done it an overarching umbrella organization had never really done a big campaign so this year clearly it's needed more than ever most people this year have been impacted by a bereavement somewhere friend family member so we are launching it again between the 2nd and the 8th of december Every day we are trying to support a different sector of the community and raise awareness on a really big scale. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an annual campaign, but this year we know it's had so much support and so much impact. And will people be able to access all of that after the event as well? They will. They'll be able to see all the events on the National Grief Awareness Week on website.org. They'll be able to look on the Good Grief Trust. They'll be able to see how and where they can get their support. And this is exactly why we've done it early Christmas, because Christmas will be so difficult for so many people. Mm. And not just Christmas, January, February, those dark, horrible months into next year and beyond. Please do look for the support. How do you think Graham would feel and how would he be reacting if he knew what you had done? How do you remember him now? I mean, I'm just very sad that he never really got to... to see his dreams I mean everyone knew how successful he was and everything but I think he would have loved to sit on an island like um, Ian Fleming and, and write a few books 
Thank you so much, Linda. That was such a brilliant conversation, a really important conversation. And we're, we're delighted to be spreading the word about the Good Grief Trust and good luck with the rest of the Awareness Week. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Now it's time for our weekly What Would You Do dilemma. And the question today is a bit of an ongoing bugbear. So Lorraine, here it is. You open your teenager's bedroom door to a horror show of dirty pants, mouldy mugs, and an explosion of makeup all over the floor, possibly including the new foundation that went missing from your makeup bag last week. So do you tidy it up or do you close the door and walk away? Well, your instinct is to tidy it up because you need a biohazard suit and some crime scene tape normally before you go in. And bearing in mind, I'm writing a book about parenting teenage girls, which I think it applies to boys as well. Every expert I have spoken to says, do not tidy it up. Do not go mm-hmm. in. So no rescuing, no sorting, no controlling. Leave it to them. So Janie Downshire, who's a family therapist who wrote a book, Teenagers Translated, talked to me at length about this that it is a problem for you, but it is not a problem for them. Mm-hmm. So A, they have to learn to deal with the way they live themselves, which is fine. I mean, you can take the dirty cups and stuff like that out, but their brain is undergoing a massive remodeling in teenage. So while you can see the mess, actually, physically, they just can't see it. And it's responsible for loads of other things. It has a slight ripple effect. If they lose something and they can't go to school or if they borrow something of yours and they don't give it back, they're not stealing it. They're not getting confused. Physically, their brains cannot work it out. So we have Mm -hmm. to be really, really patient with them. But also this is their domain. And privacy, when you're building your new identity, is incredibly important to you. Anyone that interferes with that will be viewed Mm. incredibly dimly and disliked. So you really can't go in there. Mm -hmm. I think there are some practical tips, though. So you can ask them... Do you choose to dry yourself with a soaking wet towel or <laughs> would you like a dry one? Yeah. And then you can leave them to do that because their room often looks like some it's been burgled and then someone's taken a shower and then listened mm-hmm. to some music and then done some art on the walls and yeah. then ground something into the carpet if possible and then thrown all t- the tiny earrings they have all around the room. But actually, that's not what they're seeing. That's just what you're seeing. So the advice is shut the door and yeah. walk away. As they get older as well, I think the dynamic changes a bit. The twins are 16, nearly 17 now. And I feel like this year has been an amazing transition. I don't know whether it's just all because we've been locked at home together for so long, but also they've gone to sixth form college. Neil and I feel like we're house sharing <laughs> these sort of almost like not parenting as much anymore we're house sharing with these two really lovely young adults so we're not having rows we're not doing any of that it's just really lovely it feels very like they've grown up enormously but oh my god the bedrooms they are still yeah and there must be rules around communal oh, space i think well totally but we've got a where... nine-year-old it's not fair for her to come down to stuff no exactly and, and it is like the muddy trainers left in the hall drives me nuts <laughs> and the uh, sliders left in the sitting room and, and all of that kind of thing but at least it's sort of not too dirty the bedroom I'm just like, you know what, I'm kind of following that advice. Oddly, my 18-year-old who's left home now and is at university, her bedroom from the Zoom calls, because I often ask for a little tour, is so tidy. Oh, and right. her bedroom Interesting. before this, mm. I wouldn't have gone in without a tetanus injection. Mm. I didn't like the dog to go in in case she ate something terrible and had to be taken to the vet to have her stomach <laughs> pumped. So it's kind of... <laughs> And it is really tidy. She's very organised. If you're tidy around them, all behaviour is communication for teenagers. Everything they are seeing, they are absorbing. So, you know, I'm quite tidy, but a bit mucky. Mm. you're very tidy and very clean oh god super tidy yeah super tidy super organized but you know who loves the messy bedrooms dogs and cats Margot. Margot. Margot would love it. Wouldn't she? Margot so loves it. She's up there in the dirty washing, wrapped up in the bed with all the, this like blankets and jackets. And that's where she goes quite nice. She likes it, Trish, because you she hate likes... it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She just because she's your me opposing spirit animal. She's your contrary <laughs> cat, as I call her. But Trish, how was your bedroom when you were a teenager? What was that, 1980s? Oh. Uh, well it definitely was the sanctuary and it was my space but I had to share with my sister for a very long time and I think I got my own bedroom when I was about 14 so you can imagine that was it was such a big deal it was so tidy because I was so proud of having this room and also my parents 
that's my poor mum would have she would have gone mental if we'd have left our rooms in the state that our kids rooms were in but it was a different time a different generation a different way of I doing things maybe I don't know I was quite messy at home yeah. I mean I did share as well for a bit and I grew up in a very small bungalow so each of the rooms were quite tiny <laughs> but my sister was very messy as well looking back I just don't think we had as much stuff no we didn't as they had yeah. so it was kind of different it was difficult to make it messy when you didn't have many mm. things you know that's the issue isn't it mm-hmm. I think really the answer to the what would you do dilemma is just let them be leave them alone Now, Trish, we're at How to Win at Midlife. So you like to indulge in a little bit of life coaching, don't you? And you certainly help me focus with a few things with your life coaching. So tell us how that can help us win at midlife. Yes, you know me, Lorraine. I am a big fan of coaching and I've I've trained to be a coach. And I just think life coaching is a really valuable way to take stock of where you are in your life, what your expectations are, are you likely to meet them, as well as identifying the choices you have. Because quite often I think we don't look at what choices we can have and make in life. So it's a good way to kind of take stock of that and look at what direction your life is going in. So I been talking to life coach Judy Reith, who along with her husband Adrian has written this really helpful book called Act 3 The Art of Getting Older which is about getting set for that third stage of life which we used to call retirement which is roughly 50 onwards. Oh don't um, say that. <laughs> really if you think about it probably friends family you're kind of moving towards it you're moving mm. towards it we're seeing it coming but for our generation as we know we are generation x we've got this incredible opportunity to live a really enjoyable longer life and in really good health if we choose to see it that way so we'll probably have a very different experience to our parents generation sounds a bit ominous Trish, <laughs> to me life coaching <laughs> can i be life coached into being an astronaut maybe Yes, of course you can. can you can I do anything. Winning an <laughs> yeah. Olympic medal in my You can 60s. do fantasy astronauting. How about that? You can coach some. <laughs> I can't be weightless, that. Trish. That'll never happen. <laughs> Really, it's about living more of the life that is true to who you are. So first off, that means working out a few things about yourself. And Judy has very handily created a visual analogy of a a tree where there are four roots representing your attitude, your purpose, your values and your key relationships. And in the book, there are lots of like really inspiring case studies that illustrate this. But to give you an idea, I will run through them briefly. No eye rolling from you. I'm not going to eye roll, but I'm very (laughs) anti this kind of structured lack of spontaneity. I love it. it. Right. Let me start with attitudes. So so if you think about it, attitudes, this is the one thing in your life that you have total control over of how you choose to see things or respond to things, because we can all choose the decisions that we make, right? And how we do it. And the question Julie suggests you ask yourself when making a decision, does it help or is it going to hurt? So have a think about that. That's interesting. Is it making or is it going to hurt? Don't focus on the hurt. Purpose, next. So this is about your reason for getting up in the morning other than obviously getting the kids out the door to school. It's kind of thinking... That's my reason for getting up in the morning. <laughs> the moment, yeah, just right. get them out the door. Get them out. But it's thinking about what you love to do and where you do things like you don't notice time passing. Talking to me on this podcast, right? Not really. But it's kind of what kind of did you want to do when you were a child? What did you love doing? And, and she says not to worry if it doesn't come to you quickly because it will come to you in the end and it's all about this idea of this person inside waiting to come out yeah i see i listened to a a podcast with oprah and brené brown Mm. the other day and they had set one of their listeners a task to go back to her childhood home look through all the photos she was lost in her life Mm -hmm. she didn't know what to do next look through all her childhood photos and see the common themes and she'd forgotten she'd forgotten that she used to play musical instruments a lot as a child and Mm -hmm. she she loved it she'd never been made to do it as her parents hadn't made her do it it wasn't a dreary practicing and she came back to it in her 40s after a divorce and she said it was the one thing that made her happy and if she hadn't gone back to thinking about being a child and looked through that and talked to her parents she wouldn't have realized what was missing and another good way is to ask people who care about you, the, you know, your parents, your family, your friends, what you're good at and what kind of lights you up. What do they see in you that's a skill or a talent or a passion? So that's a kind of a way of kind of getting to this point of purpose. Um, the third root of this imaginary tree is values. And oh, I like values. <laughs> values are good. And this is the time in life to prioritise your values because quite often we've probably 
grown up and been living with maybe other people's values and thinking about the phrases, oh, I should do this, I ought to do this, or I must do this. And those are words we shouldn't be using at this time in life. We should be doing things because we want to do them, not because we should do them or ought to do them or must do them. So again, it's someone else was describing your qualities, ask them, maybe come up with three and kind of just kind of keep them nearby and see if you are genuinely or three living qualities, Trish. Kindness is really important to me. Yeah, uh, really, yeah. really important to me. And trying to see the wow in other people and getting them to see the wow, if that makes sense, and just drawing it out of them, which I, you know, is is really important to me. And just, I think, being aware of what's going on in the world and knowing that I have a role to play and responsibilities in terms of the environment or or that kind of thing so doing my bit I suppose in terms of the the, the wider community in the world what about you well I think I'd like someone to say kind she was Mm -hmm. kind I think I'd like someone to say she was jolly optimistic and positive and upbeat Mm -hmm. and funny and I think maybe also smart that's one of my values always to try and make the smart decision So um, and I think not, you do. Yeah, I think it's whether or not it's the thing you want to do or other people are doing and not be influenced, mm. just to be smart about what is good for you and your kind yeah. of family. Well, yeah. I like this. I like it's this. Going, you're liking, you're liking this going. is going well. Fourth route is key relationships. And this is the kind of cocktail of all the important people in your life. Again, partners, friends, kids and parents. And Judy says that they really matter more. We might not be thinking about this, but they really do matter more and more as we get older because we're going to start to lose people and our lives might become a bit smaller we know there's an epidemic of loneliness out there especially this year for people so it's like you know you might think you're just happy there at home with your cat or your dog but actually you know those you need to spend time nurturing those relationships and she had a really good suggestion for your main relationship if you have a partner is to have an annual mot you don't do it at home you maybe go out for the day or you go away somewhere overnight and mr candy would resist this (laughs) he would call it navel gazing there's nothing wrong with that that's what we need this is the whole point we need to do a bit of navel gazing apparently you're supposed to each come up with an agenda and uh, i do it with neil you could instead <laughs> do it with james exactly <laughs> you have to then go away and kind of almost you discuss these things that are important to you what things what what do you say it can be th- you want to tell your partner what you appreciate about them and then you tell them and you have to be very very specific i think with men in particular you really need to tell them it's not good enough to say I really could do with some more help around the house or I could really do with, you know, you yeah. know some help with the kids. It is, it would be really great if you could pick the kids up on a, on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it is or from school on a Monday. And you just ask them to do one or two things that is going to make your life better. And then you appreciate the things that they are doing for you. So God, I really love it when you bring me a cup of tea when I've got a hangover. So it's that kind of thing. So yeah. it all sounds a bit obvious and I know you might think it's a bit woo woo. People don't do it though, do they? People don't communicate. No. It's really it's, about communicating, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. And, or it might be that you think it's time to write a letter to my mum or I want to take oh, my, my <laughs> She wouldn't like that. Says she wouldn't like that. Okay. <laughs> there we are. So that's kind of the roots. And then holding up the tree, imagine visualizing this tree is your health it's just so that's, being a tree now look she's <laughs> literally being a, a tree a tree trunk and that's about taking care of ourselves because obviously the aging process is going to do what it does to us and we need to be taking care of ourselves and then from there we have the branches of the tree and that's quite a lot of different things like the day-to-day things of life like work money that sort of thing and the book works through all of those things and I, I just found it super helpful and you know what I think it's the perfect time of year to do this because we're heading into new year aren't we we're heading into another year that we all hope and pray is going to be a much better one than this has been so i think it's quite a good time to take stock i think that's very helpful very Mm -hmm. well explained trish so this book is called act three the art of getting older by judy and adrian reese and i believe there's some videos aren't there that go with it which is on their act3life.com website so check those out and then let us know how you got on in the facebook group because it'd be interesting to know this is about taking a moment isn't it stepping back and talking Mm -hmm. about what's going to happen next which is a very good idea and in fact we will be actually having a book to give away on the facebook group as a prize so do head on to there and you can enter that competition right trish we are ready for your nostalgia noodling oh 
what have you discovered back in the time vault? Oh, back in the day. Well, see, we've already had a little trip to Grange Hill, which is I'm rather so lovely. excited about that. Rather lovely. Can you remember? It was so so oh, brilliant. Great Grange it Hill, really wasn't it? Really was. And I always remember Trisha Yates. She was the one I remember because obviously Trisha. I'm Trish, so I was. <gasps> she was tall and skinny, which I definitely wasn't. But was anyway, husky. <laughs> I was also in a bit of a TV mode. Well, a sort of sporty TV mode because That's I realised that. Like you. I don't know anything about sport these days. No. Back in the 70s, I knew everything there was to know about sport. Can I just throw a few names at you? What? How how did you know? Ray Reardon. Ray Reardon. No, don't understand. Who's he? Kevin Keegan. Who's that snooker player? Steve somebody. Yeah, exactly. This is what I'm talking about. I knew all the sports. And do you know why? Because that's what we had to watch. Because my dad loves sport. (laughs) Oh, one telly. The one telly. The one telly. Usually a big sort of brown box in the corner of the living room. And, you know, my dear old dad had been at work all day, uh, working very, very hard. So he obviously got to choose what to watch in the evening or on a Saturday afternoon. And it was always the sport. So we were either like, well, you either watch it or you don't kind of thing. So, um, so golf. Can you imagine saying to your teenagers now, this is it, you've got to watch it. I, was, I, I, to I, was watching, I saw a clip of question of sport and I literally not a clue and but back in the day it was my favorite program I used to answer all the questions quite the sporting buff did you I have was. a football team I did Tottenham Hotspur oh dear yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> now do you know where I've been where have you been well my son just turned 14 and uh, he wanted a new Rubik's Cube. I mean, we've got like thousands of them, broken bits of them in the house. And I thought, that's ridiculous, a Rubik's mm. Cube. And then that took me back to um, birthdays yes. in the 70s and 80s. Do you remember birthdays? In the yes, I do. I do. Jelly and ice cream. Yes, Fish. jelly and ice cream. Do you imagine if you that's serve so jelly and ice cream nice. now, they'd go, why is that with that? That's ridiculous. Pass the parcel in a community yeah. centre. Can't have that now, can you? Nobody's got a newspaper. You can't wrap anything up. There's no actual paper in the house. It's all online, isn't it? I was just thinking how poorly catered they were, Mm. uh, but also how low-key... And that was still considered. Mm. I'm just going to say very well catered because it was <laughs> it was little sandwiches, fairy cakes, jelly and ice cream. I mean, that's got to be better than a, a, a kind of a fast food takeaway box with some bits of plastic in it or whatever it is that you give them <laughs> there's a wonderful picture there's a website called historical pictures that just occasionally throws up a 70s 80s picture and there's a brilliant picture which made it into all the newspapers of a little boy he must be about three blowing the candle out on his cake mm-hmm. um, and as he's blowing the candle out there's two people in the background smoking cigarettes which are literally <laughs> being waved about three centimeters yeah, from his face yeah. there's crushed beer cans and unemptied ashtrays and granny sat opposite him clapping <laughs> and you just think that would never oh my god never happen those now, were the it? days that's Terrible. all i can say so that little nostalgia noodle brings us to the end of this episode of postcards from midlife thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed it please tell your friends and all the midwife women you know and remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and please rate and review us too And don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, on Instagram, or you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Goodbye.